are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's question and answer time. We're going to begin with a question that comes in via social media uh, from Bullagers. Bullager says this, Pastor David, I just want to know, where is Satan right now? In Revelation, he's in the bottomless pit, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Is that a past, present, or future event that's going to happen? Thanks, and God bless you. Well, Bullagers, let me just say, I think that's an excellent question that you ask, and it's something that people ask about from time to time. Again, wondering, where is Satan right now? Now, I think we can say that the event you described in Revelation chapter 20, where he's cast into the bottomless pit, that is something that has not yet happened. Because that casting into the bottomless pit emphasizes the total inactivity of Satan. He's bound with a chain. He's put in a bottomless pit. It's sealed over. In other words, that describes a time when Satan is inactive among the affairs of humanity and on planet Earth. And if there's anything we know, it's that the devil is alive and well on planet Earth doing his work right now, doing, as First Peter describes, he's, uh, how do you put it? He's uh, like a roaring lion roaring about seeking whom he may devour. So he's active right now. The other thing we know this is that not only is Satan active on the Earth, but there's different Bible passages that seem to describe Satan as also having some kind of presence in heaven. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, describes Satan as the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night. And the book of Job indicates that Satan and his fallen angel cohorts, that they also have access to heaven. So we would say something like this, that Satan, his main base of operations is, of course, here on the earth, but he has some kind of access to heaven as well, because it's in heaven, according to Revelation 12.10, that he accuses God's people and what we know from the book of Job. I find a fascinating scripture that ties into this being Luke chapter 10, verse 18, where Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, I think it's fascinating to see that we can say that the Bible actually mentions four falls of Satan. Here's the four falls of Satan. Number one, he fell from glorified to profane. That's described in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 14 through 16. Then he fell from having access to heaven to restriction on the earth. The access to heaven is described in places like Job chapter 1, verse 12, uh, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Two, being restricted to the earth. Again, that's Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. The third fall of Satan is from the earth to bondage in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. That's described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And then the final fall of Satan is from the pit to the lake of fire. That's described in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Now, in my estimation and from my study of the Bible, I'd say this, that only the first fall of Satan, that from glorified to profaned, has actually happened at this time. The other falls of Satan, 
have not yet come to pass. So I believe that the fall you referred to in Revelation chapter 20 is yet to happen. And right now, Satan's main base of operations is on the earth. Yet it seems that in some way he has access in heaven. And there will come the time when that access to heaven is no longer allowed. We find that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. So thanks for your question. Let me move on to another question from Naveen. Naveen asks a great question. Here it is. You ready for it? Naveen asks, should Christians engage in debate? Let me read it to you one more time. It's short but sweet. Naveen asks, should Christians engage in debate? Naveen, let me give you an answer. It's going to be the classic answer that people give. Yes and no. I think you could answer that question on either side. Let me explain. First, the yes side of it. We should give to every man an answer for the hope that lies within us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that. And so it's a very important thing for us to do. We need to be able to give to everybody an answer, and sometimes that's going to take the form of debate. Jude also gives us the example of contending for the faith. That's Jude chapter, or Jude verse 3. There's only one chapter in the book of Jude, but Jude verse 3. So contending for the faith would certainly mean at times debating for the faith. And we can say that as we go through the gospel records, we see that Jesus himself many times debated and defended the truth of God. And of course, Paul did also, as we see his ministry, both described in the book of Acts and in the letters that he wrote to churches. So is there a place for debate in the Christian life? Yes, Christians should be out there arguing ideas, defending the faith, giving to everybody an answer. Yes, we should do this. Now let me give you the no, or maybe I should say it's a caution end of it. Sometimes debate among Christians becomes needlessly divisive. Now I want to use that phrase carefully, needlessly divisive. There is a such a thing as necessary division among Christians where there is compromise and heresy of such a significant level that two Christians should no longer walk together. There is something of a necessary divisiveness that we see. But far, far more often than ever dealing with necessary divisiveness, we're dealing with needless divisiveness. Notice what it says in Titus chapter 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Did you know what he said there? Foolish disputes? No. Contentions? No. Strivings about the law? No. Why? They're unprofitable and useless. Then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, Paul warns of those who are obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men. Again, empty arguments, arguments over words, disputes, people who are obsessed with such things. So I think it's important for us to say that sometimes the debate, sometimes the uh, controversy among Christians is not glorifying to God. Sometimes it should be put away. Sometimes it's arguing well, you see, it's like this. Sometimes we focus on the relatively small and few things we disagree about rather than agreeing on the great body of truth that we do agree about. 
Now, it's true. Sometimes Christians debate badly. They're dishonest when they debate. What do I mean by dishonest? Oftentimes that they just make accusations without backing them up. Other times Christians debate badly. They're dishonest by the way that they misrepresent their opponents. Other times Christians debate badly because they focus on winning the debate rather than on finding truth. And they allow their pride, their arrogance to get in the way. So I guess I would say this. Yes, we can and should debate as believers, but we should do it rightly. We should do it truthfully, and we should do it in a truly godly way. You know, for those who are the debaters and the arguers, and they see themselves as the real contenders for the faith, which we need to have those people in the body of Christ, there's no doubt about it. Here's a question I would ask you. Can people see love in what you do? Now, don't give me the old line, well, I'm showing you love because I tell you the truth. Yeah, you're telling the truth, but maybe you're doing it in such an abrasive, offensive, uncaring way that you think that your mere vomiting out the truth in an offensive way is a display of love. No, no, no. It's not enough just to have truthful information that you share with people. There has to be something in the manner in which you share it that also displays the love of God. I think that's a very important point, none more important in our own present day. Okay, on to the next question. Neil asks a question, and this has to do with the video that I did on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And Neil, I have slightly reworded your question I think to make it a little more clear for myself and to make it clear, hopefully, for any of our listeners here. So Neil's question is this. David, thank you for this very thorough video. Again, just, just to remind you folks, he's talking about the video that I did on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You can find it in our iTunes library. Okay, he says, David, thank you for this very thorough video. I entirely agree with your repudiation of the covenantal view, for example, the insistence that one must break off a second marriage and go back to a first marriage. I deal with that at some length in the video. So here's his question. Could I ask you this, and I haven't been able to get anyone to give me a satisfactory answer. I tend towards the exceptionist view. I think the plainest reading of Matthew chapter three, uh, 5, verse 32, and 19.9 is that divorce marriage on pornea grounds is, unaccept is acceptable. But I also think that the plainest reading of 1 Corinthians 7.15 is that divorce remarriage on abandonment grounds is acceptable. And by the way, Neil, I just want to say, but I agree with you on those points, that divorce and remarriage on pornea grounds is acceptable and on abandonment grounds, and you're citing the relevant texts. Matthew 5.32, Matthew 19.9, and 1 Corinthians 7.15. Now, he continues on. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, seems to reject abandonment as adequate grounds because if the abandoned spouse is caused to commit adultery or is a victim of adultery if they remarry. So here's the situation as he kind of lays it out. If Bill the Believer abandons and divorces Mary for non-pornea reasons, this is not okay, 
and an unbiblical divorce, according to Matthew 5.32. But if Bob the unbeliever abandons and divorces Mary for non-pornea reasons, this is okay and a biblical divorce, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Then he says, the only difference I can see maybe is that it's not okay for Bill the believer, Matthew chapter 5.32, but it is okay for Bob the unbeliever. Any thoughts reconciling these two passages? Now, Neil, I got to admit, your question is complex, and it might benefit our readers. Maybe we'll put the text of your question as I've included it there in the comments, just so people get it. But, but let me give you the basic answer. Yes, the two situations are different. Why? Because there is something different about a Christian marriage. And part of that difference is to make a Christian marriage even more binding. Now, I'll just repeat that. You're right. There is difference between an unbeliever abandoning somebody and a believer for abandoning somebody and how that measures off in whether or not a person can be remarried without committing adultery. So the two situations are different. And again, I would base that on the idea that there is something different about a Christian marriage. And part of that difference is to make the marriage even more binding. Now, I would have to agree with you. This is a difficult area. And I'll tell you, it's difficult at least in two ways. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. When we look at that passage, we need to say, how do we understand what a believer is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15? Is this a declared unbeliever? Is this someone behaving like an unbeliever? Is this someone who has little or no evidence of their faith and therefore is regarded as an unbeliever? It's a little bit difficult to, to say what an unbeliever is there. And then it's also difficult because of how we would understand what abandonment is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Some cases are very easy to understand. Here's an unbelieving husband. He has a believing wife. And he says, because you're now a Christian, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm leaving you. Okay, the clear-cut case of abandonment. Some of these abandonment situations are easy to understand, but we have to admit some of the abandonment situations are more complicated, uh, such as does physical abuse constitute abandonment? Does lack of financial support constitute abandonment? These are difficult questions, but I would say this. The term abandonment is not endlessly elastic justifying, for example, somebody who just says, you know, my spouse isn't there for me emotionally. I feel abandoned. So there's some things that are clearly abandonment. There are some other things that are clearly not abandonment. And there's probably some things in the middle that take a lot of discernment. These complexities need wise, spirit-led, careful, biblical, and pastoral counsel. And if I could say this, the complexities come in because of our sin, because of our failure to live up to how God tells us to do it. Now, I'm so glad that there's forgiveness for all who confess and repent of their sin. 
but the complicated consequences of our sin. These are the things that we could have been spared of through obedience. And we just pray that God would help us and help others to spare ourselves such com- such uh, consequences and become more and more benefits of God's law and God's way. So, Neil, that's a long answer to a complicated question. I hope that's some help to you. Okay, continuing on, here is a question from Nicholas. Excuse me as I take a little drink of water from my Enduring Word cup. We read here. Nicholas says, Hey David, so good to find you on YouTube. I've been reading your commentaries for about 12 years, I think. By the way, uh, just so you know, my Bible commentaries have been on the internet since about 1996. So it is at some 23 years now my Bible resources have been out and been used and least have helped to some people. So, Nicholas, I'm glad to hear that you've been using them for about 12 years. He says, now, uh, may I humbly ask you these three questions relating to the millennial kingdom. Here's the questions. Will saints be able to have children during the millennial kingdom in contrast to other people who presumably will be able to have children? Okay. Let me answer these questions one by one, Nicholas. Okay, when you say saints, I'm going to assume you mean people who are believers now who will be glorified and receive resurrection bodies and who will in some sense, let's be honest, some sense that we don't fully understand right now, but who will in some sense rule and reign with Jesus Christ If your question is, will those people be able to have children during the millennial kingdom? I would say no, because they have received their resurrection body. And it seems to me once you receive a resurrection body, your childbearing experience is over. So that would be the difference that I would make. Not resurrection body yet. Yes, potentially could have children. Has a resurrection body? No, you're fitted for eternity, and that's not related to the bearing of children. So that's number one. Number two, will we be young and attractive in the millennial kingdom despite our current age and appearance? Nicholas, that's a pretty interesting question because when it comes to our resurrection bodies, it's a fascinating question. What age will we be? Now, most people, well, not most people, let's just say some people have believed that we will be something like 30 years old. They base that on the estimated age of Adam when he was created and the age upon which Jesus started his ministry and the Levites started their ministry. The idea is maybe that there's some kind of peak of at least biological capability at age 30. Maybe that's true. So people think maybe somewhere between 25 and 35 will be our age, but we don't know for sure. I think I've shared this with uh, my YouTube audience before, but uh, I've got one friend who's a wonderful Bible teacher and speaker, and he estimates that in the kingdom, when we receive resurrection bodies, we're all going to be eight years old because nobody has more fun than an eight-year-old. And Jesus said, it's to the children that the kingdom belongs. Well, that's a wonderful thought. 
Who knows? So I can't tell you how, uh, what our age will be. And I can't tell you if we're going to be attractive. You know, I mean, if we're not all that attractive now in this earth, will we be terribly attractive in our resurrection bodies? I don't know. I don't think we're all going to be supermodels in our resurrection body. I think we will have our peak, uh, if I could put it this way, our peak appearance as it is on this earth. But let's remember that the things that we value in appearance in this present age are influenced somewhat. I don't want to exaggerate, but they're influenced in some regard by some worldly estimations. I, I think that people on this age who are thought to be somewhat plain or homely may to the eye of eternity be much more attractive than we can imagine. Okay, that's your second question. And then third, are married people who are raptured still technically married since they did not die? Again, no, because again, it's not so much death that changes that, although death does, but the fact that they have received their resurrection bodies. This is relevant to everything. Saints in the age to come, they will have gone through the resurrection and they will be on a different standing than people who remain on this earth and who have not gone through the resurrection. So that, that's the difference between people who are believers right now and the future that they will have when eternity comes and when we come into the millennial reign. Okay? Hope that's helpful for you, Nicholas. Let's go on to another question here by Jennifer. It comes from Facebook. Jennifer asks this question. She says, please give me your take on this. I keep stumbling over the part that it is not for cultural reasons, but angelic, heavenly reasons that we must cover our heads. Okay, then she's giving the passage of Scripture to read. Again, it's from 1 Corinthians. It says this, quote, But a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a, head cover, without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. But since it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, she should wear a covering. For this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show that she is under authority. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, and then verse 10 from the New Living Translation. All right, Jessica, let me see if I could do this for you and just walk you through it, at least from my perspective once again. Here's my perspective on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 shows that the principle is the respect of God's order of authority in the church. That is, where God has ordained that congregations be led by qualified men. Men and women together are important in kingdom work, and they are essential in their roles. But God has, in some respects, different roles for men and women, and that should be respected. So that's what God is calling them to do in 1 Corinthians 11, to respect God's order of authority in the church, where God has ordained that congregations be led by qualified men, not just any men, by qualified men. Now, in first century Corinth, an outward way that principle was respected was for women to wear a head covering. 
a woman with a head covering in first century Corinth said something. And a woman without a head covering said another thing. With head covering says, I am under authority. Without a head covering says, I am not under authority. Now, Jessica, here's just my point. Those cultural expressions don't mean the same thing at all for us today. Today, when you see a woman with a head covering, you don't think there's a woman who's under authority. She's respecting some authority in her life. When you see a woman without a head covering, you don't say, well, there's a woman who's not under anybody's authority, but just does her own thing. You don't say those things. That's not the conclusion you draw. So those cultural expressions don't mean the same thing at all for us today. So I don't have any problem in saying we will absolutely stick to the principle. And the principle is the respect of God's order of authority in the church and in the home to that regard. But at the same time, we don't feel bound by the specific way that principle was expressed in the first century Mediterranean world. Um, you can make a similar analogy between foot washing. Foot washing in the ancient world was something that was done commonly by the slave of the home. This was just something that happened every day in people's homes. Therefore, for Jesus or for a church leader to wash the feet of other people, it meant something. Now, I'm not trying to put down foot washing ceremonies. If you want to have a foot washing ceremony, that's fine. But you just have to admit that it doesn't mean the same thing in connection with the culture that it meant in the first century. So that's what we have to consider. Now, I will say this. If you want to wear a head covering, you have the liberty to do so. Just make sure you are also respecting the principle that God commands. That's the really important part, the principle that God commands. Okay, let's get to a couple more questions. Uh, one comes from Chad, and he's commenting on the video we did on Jesus, the perfect sacrifice that comes from the Hebrews series. So Chad asked this, he says this, if Jesus is the final sacrifice, how should I reconcile that with Ezekiel chapter 45, verses 17 through 25? Well, the passage in Ezekiel 45 that Chad is referring to is a passage that speaks about, now I have to admit, this is an area that's under some controversy among Christians. There is division in the Christian world about how these last three chapters of Ezekiel should be interpreted. I'm going to give you my interpretation. I believe that the last three chapters of Ezekiel describe some kind of memorial or commemoration that happens in the millennial earth with a temple and with sacrifice. Again, I want to make sure those... Uh, Sacrifices are not for the atonement of sin that was once and for all finished at the cross. But there were other aspects of atonement under the Mosaic Law and apparently continuing into the millennium. Let me quote to you from Ralph Alexander in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. He says this, These rituals of atonement were commemorative of the complete and finished work of Christ for sin 
through the sacrifice of himself. They were in no way efficacious. Again, he's referring to Ezekiel 45. They were picture lessons and reminders to the people of their Messiah's marvelous saving work. What praise and worship they would give to the Lord for his gracious provision for sin as they viewed these sacrificial reminders in worship, again, as in Revelation chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. Again, that's Ralph Alexander in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. So again, we regard these as rituals of atonement, but they are commemorative. They're not efficacious. They simply point back to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, I find it interesting that as you study Ezekiel chapters 45 through 48, some aspects of what goes on in Ezekiel 45 and 48 are connected to the past Mosaic rituals, but there's other things that are new, such as the exact specific ceremony described in Ezekiel chapter 45, verses 17 through 25, as you ask about, that isn't precisely like anything before in the Mosaic law. Oh, I mean, there's some similarities and overlap, but it is not the same as the previous ceremony. So there's something new happening in Ezekiel 45. It's not a restoration of the Mosaic order. There's something new, and it's new in that it looks back with commemoration to what Jesus did. These are not sacrifices for the atonement of sin as Jesus did on the cross. At least that's my viewpoint on it. Now, finally, Andrea asks a question, and here's her question. She says this, I listened to a message you held at Calvary Chapel Monterey about how does Jesus affect my life? in which you explained how to work out our salvation and several Christian principles like being in the Word. At the end of the message, you encouraged the congregation not to simply walk out with a to-do list, but to receive from Jesus who enables us to follow him and to do the principles he wants us to live by. Would you say, and here's the question, would you say that this receiving from Jesus or the idea of, I cannot do anything outside of Jesus, is equivalent with being filled with the Spirit. So let me just repeat again the question aspect of this. The question aspect is this. Would you say that this receiving from Jesus, or the idea of, I cannot do anything outside of Jesus, is this the equivalent of being filled with the Spirit? All right, Andrea, let me give you the answer to this. I would say, not exactly. Now, the concepts are certainly related. Uh, receiving from Jesus, focus on Jesus, is similar to being filled with the Spirit, but they're not exactly the same. We have our constant looking to Jesus and our reliance on Jesus. Okay, we have those things. We also have our constant filling and receiving of the Holy Spirit. I would say this. The two work together, but they are not exactly the same. We need to be constantly being filled with the Spirit. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. We need to be constantly being filled with the Spirit so that we can look to Jesus, so that we can abide in Him, so that we can be constantly receiving to Him. Now, 
both the filling of the Spirit and receiving from Jesus look outside of self and they look unto God. And that is a very important and precious aspect of this. So they are similar, but I would not regard them as exactly the same. And if there's anything I would say, I would say that it is the filling of the Spirit and the receiving of the Spirit and the walking in the Spirit that equips me to abide in Jesus and to receive from him the strength that I need to do that work. Well, that's about it for this week's questions. I'm glad you could join us. I do want to remind every one of our viewers that now we have out an Enduring Word app that is available both in the iOS version and in the Android version. So go to the Google Play Store, the Apple Store, whatever it is, get the Enduring Word app. It'll give you a way to quickly and easily look up my Bible commentary on your portable device. Uh, thanks to those who pray for the work of Enduring Word, especially our translation work in our two focus languages right now, getting the New Testament commentary translated into Arabic and into Chinese. And thanks for all who just help out uh, with financially supporting the ministry and especially your prayers. We're so, so grateful for what God is doing and what he promises that he will do in the future. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. And join us again next week when we hope to have a live question and answer time. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.